Welcome to our podcast, Deconstruct. We're your hosts, Lauren and Adam. On this podcast, we help start or continue conversations about the beautiful and messy parts of life. Although we both had a conservative upbringing, we've since grown out of our traditional ways of thinking and have deconstructed the religious lenses we once saw the world through. From being in the CCM industry and purity culture to sex positivity and sacred sovereignty, it's been quite the ride. We bring on a wide variety of guests to hear their story and break down topics like religious trauma, racism, and the patriarchy, while demystifying things like spirituality, equality, and love. We'd love to hear your story. You can find us on Instagram at deconstruct.pod. Now, on to the episode. everyone and welcome back to the podcast. Today we have Jonathan Merritt. He is one of uh, America's most popular writers on issues of faith and culture. He is author of several critically acclaimed books, including Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing, and How We Can Revive Them, named Book of the Year by the Inglewood Review of Books. Jonathan holds a Master of Divinity from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, a Master of Theology from Emory University's Candler School of Theology, and has done additional graduate work focused on ascetical theology at the General Theological Seminary of the Episcopal Church. Jonathan currently happily resides in New York City. He is an aspiring dog dad, a college football fan, and intolerable before coffee. <laughs> Jonathan, I hope you've had your coffee. Oh, I have had plenty of coffee today. Probably it's never enough, but I've but I've had plenty of coffee today. So thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. So, you know, we want to just get into the the most important questions first. Um so speaking on coffee, if you're so intolerable before coffee, um what how do you like your coffee? How do you take your coffee? You know, I think there is a kind of um, evolution for coffee drinkers. Most of us, when we were like in our 20s, when we were just like recent college grads, it was like, you know, the syrupy, sweet lattes with foams and, and, you know, all of uh, Cool Whip and all the weird stuff that, that like kids put in coffee. And now I just feel like I'm looking for really great black coffee. Right. I don't want any sugar in it. Yep. I don't want any milk in it. I don't want a <laughs> nut milk. I just want a great black coffee. And so occasionally I'll do an Americano, which uh-huh. is, you know, uh, it's it's a co- it's black coffee adjacent. Yeah, right. <laughs> I really I really just like black coffee. Um, Amazing. So that's where. Maybe that makes me old and boring, uh, but I tend to read it as maturity or evolution. <laughs> right. Well, don't we always like to read boredom as maturity? <laughs> I, I The first thing I start with every morning is a, a cup of pour over. It's the, always the yeah. first cup oh, of coffee yes. I make in the morning. Just as it is. I, I do enjoy my... Um, my little almond milk creamer. It's it's very good. Uh, so, but you know, I only put I creamer in good coffee too. Like right. you know, there's a balance. But um, yeah, that's a great. You know, we needed to know how you liked your coffee. We talked about coffee in our uh, uh, actually our episode with the Dirty Rotten Church kids. I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with them. <laughs> um, but yeah, we had to had to add that in there. Also, you said you're an aspiring dog dad. Okay, so does that mean you yes. have a dog or you don't have a dog? 
I don't. I don't have a dog, and I don't have a dog because a lot of reasons. One, I live in New York City, right. and okay. it's very hard. You know, I've, I live in a small building, a small yeah. apartment by myself, and I'm in a fourth floor walk up. Oh, gracious! And I live. I live in an Episcopal seminary. They're gracious enough to to allow me to live here, oh, and cool. so your dog can't can't go potty mm-hmm. in the seminary right. grounds. So I'm sitting here imagining like having to, <laughs> to housebreak a dog where I have to run down four flights of stairs, Gracious. carry the dog out of the property, out of the gates, let them go to the, it's just like, that would be a nightmare. It's not the time. No, it's not the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we started with our dog. She was a, uh, she was a puppy while we were living in a 400 square foot, what felt like a glass box in downtown Nashville. And there was not a spot of grass in any sort of eye shot. So it was always a challenge, but we you know, made it work. live and learn. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, we, that's right. we wouldn't do it again, but, um, it sounds like the maturity of the black coffee is really helping you understand <laughs> what yeah. you need to do to make your life a little bit easier. Exactly. Exactly. Well, last really important question, um, is what favorite college football team? Well, I was raised in Georgia, outside of Atlanta, and so we were big Go in dogs? general in the South. Yes. Okay. We're SEC family, but we're <laughs> definitely Georgia Bulldogs, so I don't watch a lot of I don't watch a lot of sports, but when it comes to college football, I always watch the dogs. For those who don't know or are listening, uh, the University of Georgia Bulldogs, but mm-hmm. I'll watch anything that is SEC football, so okay. that's, that's, my, that's my only sport guilty pleasure and outside of that I don't really (laughs) I don't really watch a ton of it that's amazing you know my my ex he was a huge uh uh Georgia Bulldogs fan so I I ended up having a lot of gear and a lot of Georgia stuff um I don't have that anymore because I actually grew up um we actually did not watch much SEC I mean we did a little bit just during football season in general but um we are big 10 uh, family. So uh, we are uh, University of Michigan, Go Blue fans in my family. <laughs> I've turned Adam uh, into a Wolverine himself. Yeah, I'm not exactly a sports, a sportser. I don't I don't really uh, do those. Uh, well, I do them. Uh, I just don't watch them. <laughs> yeah, he plays them. But anyway, I just, you know, we needed to have a really well-rounded view of who you are <laughs> before we get into the good stuff. Um, well, this was good stuff. Not going to lie, but um okay so you are a writer and and a very well accredited writer to at that yes and so of course here on the podcast we love talking about stories and we want to know kind of how you got to where you are um so maybe the first question i want to ask you is um and then we can kind of go backwards but as a writer you can write about anything um why do you choose to write about faith and culture you know, I think it is, it's a combination of, um, it, it's, it is endlessly fascinating to me. It's mm. my, it's, I'm passionate about it. And so, you know, I'm talking to you today from my apartment and I have like three book, really large bookshelves in my, in my living room with stacks of books just mm. everywhere in this house. And I would say 75% of them are on religion and spirituality. And so for me, nobody's making me spend my heart on my money on books. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I do it because I love it. I'm passionate about it. It's like the thing that, that gets me up in the morning and keeps me up at night. And so 
it that that for me is like why wouldn't you do mm. something that is aligned with your interests because it makes the workday feel more like a day and less like work and right. so I, I I've done it because of that and I think also I'm I'm good at it I have an mm. eye uh, I have an eye for uh, the trends I'm able to see kind of what's happening um, in particular faith movements. And so being able to, throughout my career, to be, to, to point things out and people say, they'll often say like, you put words to something that I couldn't say, yeah. or, you know, that, that, that you said the thing that I've been feeling. And so when you, when you hear that over and over and you love the topic, you go, gosh, not only do I love this, but I'm good enough at it that it's making a difference. It's making a contribution. And so I wrestled for a long time with whether I might leave kind of this field, this area, and oh, maybe boy. do something different. And uh, I think that in life, there are things that you run toward and there are things you can't run away from. Mm -hmm. And both <laughs> of those are like legitimate expressions of, vocation. Yeah. And some people are like, man, I just always wanted to be a hairstylist, or I always wanted to be an attorney or a, a dental assistant or whatever. And they ran toward those things. Yeah, I, I, I didn't like grow up dreaming of being what I am today. Um, but every time that I've tried to do something different, there's this sort of like boomerang effect that draws me back in. And so I've learned to identify the resistance that I feel mm. to my own vocation for various reasons mm. and to learn to just sort of um, settle into this, knowing that not only do I love it, but it is making some kind of difference in the world. Well, and a lot of people are having feelings about it right now. And and like you said, you're, you are putting words to feelings and, and it can be something that's so intimate. So to be able to describe and and help somebody through a process of of working through all of these feelings that they have surrounding something so huge so so universal um i i, I feel like that's that's a, a burden to bear but also something to feel in, incredibly and in, intimately connected with people how how did you start into your journey into figuring out what your feelings were around deconstructing Christianity and diving into spirituality and all of that? Yeah, you know, I grew, in order to sort of answer this question, I'd have to explain how I grew up. I already mentioned I grew up in Georgia. So you know that, mm -hmm. you know, I grew up in the evangelical South in sort of um, the, the white hot center of conservative American Christianity. And um, I... I grew up in the inner sanctum of that. My uh, father was uh, a very well-known evangelical megachurch pastor. He still to this day is a televangelist on TBN. Um, he had a PhD from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And when I was in college at Liberty University, he was president of the Southern Baptist Convention, which in the U.S. is the largest Protestant denomination and a very, very conservative, I would say, fundamentalist yeah. um, institution. And so that is the that's the context in which um, words like God and mercy uh, and saved and loved 
uh, were, were formed for me. And so I had, you know, definitions of those words, understandings of those words, the pictures that came into my mind when I heard those words or when I thought about those concepts that were shaped largely in part by white evangelicalism. And um, they were deeply rooted in me, not just because that was the context, but because I was taught that um, in this sort of dualistic culture there was a right and there was a wrong and people like me were right we had figured it out mm. we had answered the questions correctly and so i was for for the most part of my my childhood my adolescence and young adulthood even as i was like in post college education i really feared any way of thinking about those concepts that deviated at all from my core understandings from childhood and so I would say that the, the sort of beginning, the early cracks in that foundation that were leading to deconstruction began when I was in seminary, surprisingly enough, at a Southern Baptist seminary. Mm -hmm. But once I, uh, once I, I started to attend uh, more liberal institutions, I became older, I was able to read more widely, um, it, it, it became like a waterfall. The changes happened very very quick, um, because once you give yourself permission to ask certain questions, it's a very short road to travel to giving yourself permission to consider scandalous answers. And uh, so it wasn't it wasn't very long until I was probably mid to late twenties. By the time I started to really give myself permission to ask those scandalous questions. Wow. I love that. And so whenever you were going through that and you were learning and asking questions and probably deconstructing, reconstructing and all that, um, you said you didn't always dream of being a, a writer. What, at what point was it during seminary? Was it during your studies that you decided you wanted to be a writer and write about these things? Um, was it through your own kind of questioning that you decided, Hey, I'm sure other people want to know this stuff too. What, what, when, when did things start changing for you in, in as far as career goes? Well, I'll tell you a story and I'll preface it by saying, I understand that, that, that the contours of the story are going to feel to some to be largely evangelical or consistent with sort of the evangelical experience. Uh, but I'm telling you that to say that I can only recount it the way that it happened. Yeah, mm. absolutely. So I, I went to college, uh, I majored in biology and chemistry. Okay. Um, I had made up my mind that I was going to be a doctor. Um, when I was a kid, I thought I was going to be a medical missionary, uh, you know, be a doctor, go serve, you know, people in need in my spare time. And that's, that was sort of going to be my, the thing I was going to do for God, uh, or at least that's sort of what I would have said at the time. I think if you excavate that now, you, you might say that was driven in part by ego, uh, by a need to feel respect from parents and, right. and mentors and the authority structures in my life. But by the time I got through college, I had completely burnt out on science. I had done very well. I graduated with honors. You know, I'd taken the MCAT. I was working at a Fortune 500 chemical company in Atlanta while I was applying to medical schools, and I was completely miserable. Mm. And I was sitting at my desk, kind of looking out over the interstate, 
And I've heard what, what the way that I recount this today, uh, I heard the voice, the capital V voice inside me say, you're going to write. And it was a very jarring thing because I had never considered being a writer. I'd never said I want to be a writer. Nobody told me that I should be a writer. I had clapped out of most of my, I, I only took one English class in all of college. It wasn't something I was particularly drawn to. And yet there was this sort of inexplicable moment when I knew this is what I was supposed to do. Yeah. So I, I told my parents, I said, Hey, I think I'm, I think I need to drop out and with, withdraw these applications from medical school. I'd already started interviewing and I, I think I need to be a religion writer. And they're like, a religion writer is not a thing. And I'm like, it, I think it's a thing. And they're like, we're pretty sure it's not a thing. I'm like, I'm going to do this. This is what I want to do. Yeah. And they were really confused. I think they thought I was going through a crisis. I quit my job. I went to work at a cell phone store. And then at night, all I did was study writing and what sort of the, the mechanics, the, uh, the way that beautiful writers write beautiful things. And I knew that I needed some work because I wanted to write about religion. I didn't have any education in religion. I had plenty of experience. So that's when I went to grad school. Okay. Uh, I went first to seminary and then to graduate school. And it was at seminary that I began to publish some of my first pieces. I was going to school full-time. I was working full-time. And then at night, I would be like, hammering out articles for publications mm. and that was just sort of the kernel and it grew over time until you know my full-time job was sort of all related to that to this sort of vocational center yeah well considering your dad's career I, I'm surprised that he was so shocked that that's something that you would want to do I think my dad would have said at the time that, um, you know, if you're evangelical, writing about Christianity is sort of um, a lesser choice mm. than than being a minister of the gospel. Right. Just like so, regurgitating the book. Right. Like, why would you want to go be an opinion writer right. in secular news when you could save souls if this is the field that you're in? and and I, I, I think that over time, he's my, my family has sort of come to kind of understand it. But I, I think in other ways, still there's a, a little, I think my, my dad's a little confounded. I, I served on his church for a while when I was at Emory. I was a teaching pastor there. I did a lot of preaching uh, there and, you know, was a creative director. And I did, you know, parish ministry, but eventually when I, you know, I guess about a decade ago, I just said, my real calling is this other thing. Mm. And I wanted to step into it full time. I think, you know, looking at it now, I think my dad would say, well, you've really, you've made a living. Yeah. Um, you've been able to do it. So what do I, what do I say about that? I do think that my dad and maybe my mom as well are at times frustrated because even though we, both both of us are involved in messaging about sacred things. We often find ourselves talking about those sacred things in ways that that feel mutually exclusive or or to some degree in conflict with right. each other, and that can create uh, tension. 
Right. Because, I mean, you're an outspoken ally to the LGBTQ community, and I've seen your posts, and I know what you write. And um, we have lots of listeners who some of their their biggest struggles are their relationships with their parents and with their families who still are, you know, evangelical or even work within a religious space. I, I think much like your your parents, how do you navigate um, that you know, the thing, basically what you had just mentioned, it seems like the things, the messaging is sometimes mutually exclusive. Um, yeah. How do you navigate the, that side of things with your, with your, uh, family? You know, um, it's, it's tough. I think, um, you, you have to make a core commitment, uh, as to whether or not this is something that you are committed to doing in the long run. I personally believe that um, it, it's almost always more negative than positive mm. to sever a primary family bond. Mm. And so even though you may have to um, manage that through boundaries and choices, um, that it's something worth committing to staying in mm. uh, almost always. Mm-hmm. Um, that the the sort of the potential psychic collapse from walking away from a fundamental relationship like that outweighs the kinds of microaggressions or frustrations that you experience within that relationship. And so I started there by saying, this is something that so long as I can do this in a healthy way, I'm going to stay in this and walk it out. And I think on their side, they made that, that commitment as well. And then Everything after that has come in seasons. Mm. Uh, there have been seasons uh, of uh, of kind of denialism mm. where we all get together and pretend uh, that we sort of play act, uh, that we're all the same and everything's the same and it's always right. been the same. Yeah. And um, uh, I think that was a, a very long phase for a long time. And and as I began to want to have more honest conversations, um, I, I think that was a struggle for them, and they avoided that. And uh, for us, it it came to a head. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I'm a big fan of of therapy, and I have a therapist, and I've had a therapist for many, many years. I've had several therapists over the years. Amazing. And you know, my therapist was able to sort of help me early uh, this year and late last year to say, hey you know, we've been trying to have some important conversations. And what I've come to realize through that is that in some very important ways, you, even though you're my parents, you don't know me very well. Mm. And I want you to know me better. And I need to know you to know me better and for me to know you better so that I can appropriately draw the types of boundaries that will allow our relationship to flourish. And so we started to to set up times to do Zoom calls. And, you know, it was like there was an hour that was ticking. And at the end of the hour, we could talk about anything else. But the issues (laughs) at hand, they stopped. That was our moment. We talked about it. And it's been incredibly fruitful. And I would say has been a real gift for us in, in the sort of twilight years of their lives to now, I think, begin creating spaces where we can be completely honest with each other, love and affirm each other, despite the fact that we have some very big differences in the way that we see and understand the world. 
Yeah. Well, I've been going through something very similar myself recently with my family where clearly a podcast is a pretty public way of um, deconstructing faith that that generally your parents uh, brought you into and and can feel a lot like denial to family. And so there's just kind of been, in my case at least, there's been a lot of shying away from the conversation because there because there's hurt that comes from the publicity of of denial of of one's younger self and so we've been able to kind of get into these conversations more recently whether it's because of self-reflection on the quality of relationships because of the pandemic or just the amount of time that we've been going through all of these kind of conversations and um it's been one of it's been a very challenging thing it's been a very fruitful thing, but I feel like through a lot of the conversations, I've not second guessed, but I've been obligated to come face to face with what I actually believe when I'm sitting in front of somebody telling them, somebody that I care about, somebody that I care to have discourse with, what I actually believe about certain things. And and that can be challenging, or at least it was quite challenging for me. And I'm curious, did you being a writer, having written about a lot of these things and your family also being quite public with, with their direction of their religious practice. Did, did you have a similar experience to that or, or how, how was your, your personal interfacing, I guess, with yourself in those conversations? You know, the good, the good thing about being a writer is that, um, I was able to express these things in an incremental way over a period of years. So it wasn't like I one day sat down with my parents and we hadn't had any conversations about matters of faith in a decade. And they were like, you believe what, you know, you, you, how did this happen? Right. Um, you know, because we, I, my job required having a public voice. Um, my parents had been able to sort of track in some ways, the changing contours of my own spiritual um, geography. Yeah. And they, they had seen that landscape changing for some time. Uh, I think that there were <clears throat> areas in which it was like, we think that this is, there, there, there are certain theological issues that evangelicals think are huge freaking deals <laughs> and the rest of the world if you told them that was a thing they might not even understand what the two sides are right i mean it's so it is so just fringy yeah for anybody else even people in like storied denominations mm -hmm. and historical christian faiths are like what the heck are I can you give an example, example. yeah there you yeah, go I'll give a great example. so I, I have a spiritual director here in the city that is a Jesuit priest. And we have been having a conversation and I said, well, you know, I've got this friend and he's going through this tough time because he lives in the South and he thinks he, he has to, uh, you know, he's got to find this woman who he wants to marry, who's a Christian. And he's got this other person he's been seeing and she's not a Christian. And so, you know, that's a problem. And my, in a very honest my spiritual director said, what do you mean? What's that? Why is that a problem? And I said, well, you know, you can't be unequally yoked. He's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and so I said, well, you know, there's this Bible verse that says, da -da -da, you know, you can't be unequally yoked. And he's like, that's not what that means. Mm. Like that's, that's about pagan beliefs about, about shackling yourself to 
irreconcilable differences. He was like, the Catholic Church has never taught, which which predates <laughs> the, this, a lot of these Protestant evangelical movements right. by, right. you know, quite a few years, has never interpreted that verse that way. Like in the Catholic Church, you can marry someone of any faith that you want, so long as you say we're willing to raise our children in this tradition. Right. And so, so long as you make that commitment, you can marry a Muslim or an atheist and the church will bless it and you can be a part. Mm. And I had never even thought, here you're having people have these spirited debates, writing books <laughs> with tens of thousands of words, breaking their, their teenage hearts to right. try to figure out how to make their lives line up mm. with a a modern fringe interpretation of one phrase Gosh. that whole swaths of Christianity aren't even looking at. And you begin to realize that you've been the victim in some ways of a kind of myopic culture that has, that has begun to wage war on some pretty insignificant things. You know, you remember when Jesus at one time said, woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites. I believe it's the gospel of Matthew. He says, you swallow a camel and you strain a gnat. Mm. And so the idea is, it's like I'm watching evangelicals who are going to war over being unequally yoked, <laughs> but are willing to swallow a racist, transphobic, homophobic, saber-rattling macho guy in the White House. Mm. And, you, and, and you overlay that and you go... In some ways, that is what fundamentalism has always done. It's taken the issues that have really mattered and has been able to minimize those issues insofar as it has a payoff in terms of power or prestige or money. And it elevates these minor issues so that I would say it's a, it's a successful tactic. It keeps its, its adherents busy with a flurry of bookkeeping and sort of anxious debating with each other. And it's a way that you can easily control fundamentalist populations. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Very, very well said. And it makes me remember at the very beginning of our conversation that you, you're very good at seeing the trends, you know, I, whether it's religious or spiritual trends. Um, and I, I'm curious, like, you know, within evangelicalism, fundamentalism or Christianity or religion, spirituality as a whole, what I mean, that's obviously a trend, right? So like these minor, the minor issues versus the big issues, like, is that what you would consider a trend? I don't know that it's a trend. I mean, look, what's one, what's a, when you talk about like, uh, I have my own definition of what's minor and what's big. Mm, and, yeah. you know, somebody else has a different definition. I do think that in part due to the the advent of the internet and the rise of social media, there there used to be a time in which if you had an idea, if you were even going to say the things that I'm saying to you right now, I would type those things out and I would have to send it to a gatekeeper, mm, yeah. a gatekeeper who has a vested interest in not publishing those things and making sure nobody publishes those things. Right? right. And that, so people are going to Lifeway and they're going to these big companies to buy all of their curriculum for their small groups, or they buy their books or their pastors buy things to prepare sermons. And they're all tightly controlled by gatekeepers who have super stringent 
uh, theological statements of faith that include issues, you know, like the subordination of women or, uh, you know, what marriage is or isn't. And anything that violates that doesn't make its way through. Oh, boy, do I know my album, <laughs> my, my the Christian album that we came out with last um, under my old band name, Love Collide. It's called Tired of Basic, and it actually ended up winning a Juno Award for Best Christian Album of the Year. But guess who wouldn't put it in their stores? Lifeway, right. <laughs> because we had a second right. piercing. And if you look at it now and you say, where's Lifeway now? Right. right. As, as we know, the retail stores have, have now gone under. Family Christian stores, which it was at one time the largest uh, Christian retailer chain, has gone under. So when there was a time that there was a, there was a way to control the ecosystem of, of, of knowledge and information, um, it, it was much, it was much easier to keep people talking about certain things. Right. And to keep them from, from, from being exposed to divergent ideas, ideas, uh, conversations, just like the one we're having, you're able to go direct to market, direct to consumer. Right. You're able to cut around gatekeepers and find your own following and find your own audience and that is very new that is not something that has happened in history before so it makes a lot of sense that we would be feeling these kinds of kickbacks and changes and evolutions in religion in politics in these major institutions because there has been such a great disruption in the way that people can access the masses without going through gatekeepers it allows change to happen at a much more rapid pace mm. So did you run into a lot of those issues when you were first writing? Because I assume that you've you've had sort of a growth and a trajectory to 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 your writing style and 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 content. Like did was that something that was happening to you at the beginning and that's why you kind of eased your way into it or did you get to just kind of jump right into writing about all of this stuff, all of this really in-depth heavy theologically tr controversial stuff? You know, my first sort of foray, well, I was writing just, you know, nothing of nothing of any significance initially you know writing about how do you prepare for a mission trip or doing a news article for disciples world magazine that's how i sort of started yeah writing for lifeway publications writing you know practical tippy articles book reviews film reviews <clears throat> but then when i was in seminary i i became deeply concerned about evangelicals position on um environmentalism mm. So I worked with some scholars, drafted a statement uh, for Southern Baptists and had like 45 Southern Baptist major leaders sign it saying they believed climate change was real, that we needed to do something about it. And it became a big national news story. Yeah, there was not what I, I did not expect that, but it became a big, you know, it was on major news networks and in the New York Times and suddenly I had access to, I was writing columns for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and for USA Today and the Washington Post. And so it was sort of through <clears throat> really picking a stupid fight. It was for, a tw I mean, I was a 27-year-old, you know, second-year MDiv student who happened to have a father with a recognizable name in the denomination. Yeah. But to be able to say something that at the time was considered quite progressive, Mm. Uh, you know, it was the position of John Kerry. Um, it was it was a foolish thing. I never expected it to go anywhere, but it did, I think, set me on a trajectory that I'll always, um, I, I was always on the kind of 
center left of center fringe yeah. of evangelicalism, but it gave me something to start with. Mm -hmm. And I would say, to answer your question most directly, my writing has evolved as I have evolved because yeah. uh, when you're, an, if you're, there, there are two kinds of journalists. There are reporters and there are opinion writers. And I, I'm an opinion writer. Yeah. And an, the secret to an opinion writer is you have to have bias. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Your job, you're paid. When people say journalists shouldn't have bias, it's like, that's not true. I'm paid to have a bias, to argue a point of view. Mm, yeah. And so my writing, if I'm writing honestly and authentically, my writing will always be a snapshot right. of where I am philosophically, theologically, politically. Yeah. And so as I have written over the last 15 years, you begin to look at the terms that I have used when you refer to a certain community, mm. the positions that I've taken. Uh, uh, you know, there was a time when I would have been very, I still consider myself pro-life. Mm. When, when I started out, that for me meant um, that you opposed restrictions or you supported restrictions on abortion that you were you would overturn roe v wade today me being pro-life means that uh well i would say fr from sort of the clinton era that it should be safe legal and rare that this is something that whether i agree with it or not we deal with through education increased funding for women who wish to bring their children to term more access to contraception in areas where it's it's not available. Mm. I wouldn't overturn Roe v. Wade if I was given the chance. If I had a, a lever and I could pull it. Right. And that's something that had to happen over many, many years right. of studying these issues and then finding the courage to share those things in public. And I think if you look back, you would see a trajectory of change over time. Totally. And I think that's I think that's beautiful to have grace and um, even at times like forgiveness for yourself for the, you know, I mean, I've had to have, um, moments of looking back on the verbiage I've used that may have been harmful at one point, or even the mindset that I used to have, but it's interesting to see because now, especially in the day and age of social media and everything like that, it's, it's easier to see progression and evolution of a person and a person's faith, um, I mean, I know I can do that. I see that from time to time. Things will pull up, be like, this was from 10 years ago. This is from five years ago, two years ago, even. I'm like, wow, I would never use those words. I would never say it quite like that. Or even at some in some situations, in some circumstances, I would never even stand on that side of things um, right. today. And the podcast, of course, helps us to be able to do that as well. I recently had someone message me and say, because uh, they were newer to our listening to our podcast um, or newer to my my uh, social my Instagram, I think it was. And they messaged me saying, hey, did you once come from a like Christian background? Like, were you like really, really Christian? What? Like back in the day, um, I was like, oh, you're new. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Welcome. Um, and I was like, yes. And she's like, yeah, some of the titles even in the podcast and the podcast isn't even that old. It's only it's 2019 is whenever we started it. Um, she said, I could tell even from the titles, um, your progression of 
of your your spiritual journey or your faith. And I was like, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about our even just the titles, but it is a reflection mm-hmm. still of who we were. Mm-hmm. Well, and your evolution, I feel like, uh, has been almost forced by your public platform, by the fact that you had said things what? before. Yeah, and your and your trajectory of your deconstruction was. Uh, I don't know if it was only aided or if it was, uh, or if it was pushed along and obligated by your platform. And I'm curious for you with with your job, uh, Jonathan, having having an obligation to have an opinion, like you said has that pushed you into into moving maybe faster or in different directions than you would have otherwise? <clears throat> no, because I can write about whatever I want to write about. Yeah. So if I've, it, there, there've been times where I've changed my mind and have not written about it for some time because mm-hmm. there's, there, there are things that we know that we cannot yet name. And I think that, that, that you, um, it is not, I think it's wisdom to choose when it's time to speak it because there, there have been times that I changed my mind and then changed it back. Right. Uh, there, and, right. and once you say, see the problem with, with communicating trajectory People will respect a progression of thought, mm-hmm. but what they don't want is a so-called flip-flopper. Right. So if you go, I'm pro-life, I'm pro-choice, I'm pro-life, every suddenly, suddenly, um, people begin to go, this guy doesn't, he's all over the place. Right. And so you do, I think, have to be really sure that um, that you have experienced. Um, a change of your perspective and for good reason. Yeah. And that you're willing to own that and to stand on that and to say it. And that you've got a high likelihood that even if you wouldn't have said it the same way, five or 10 years from now, Mm. you've minimized the possibility of regret. Yeah. And and so I I have in, in many, many times, I think the, even being in favor, you know, you brought up LGBTQ issues, even being in favor of, of gay marriage or being in favor of reparations, um, you know, they're being um, opposed to the death penalty. Um, at, there were different points, and those are political issues, but theologically, mm-hmm. theologically be- beginning to realize that the mercy of God is wide. And doesn't only include people who think like me or, or believe like me or practice like me. Yeah. Um, you know, th- those, those transitions happened and um, I, th- they were pondered in my heart before I felt comfortable enough to really write them down. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. And I, as a writer, I, I also write some. Um, it's, it's weird. I don't truly consider myself a writer because nothing's ever been out (laughs) like published or anything but I do write I have a blog and um, I've thought about and been curious about maybe one day writing a book and I have some things written out to kind of get me started on that Um, however as somebody who's very um, I'm very passionate and um, I'm 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 very much ever evolving we all are but I feel like I evolve at hyper speed. Um, I, I'm curious as a as a writer because you're writing a book, right? Um, that it takes some time. Has there been 
moments and days or seasons for you where you've written and then you look back at the thing you wrote three months ago and you're like, wait, do I need to redo that whole thing? Because now I would never use that language. Or do you just carry on and continue what you're doing and just stay on that trajectory? Or do you do you, do you start from scratch? What What is your writer's process within that? You know, I, I wrote a book years ago called Jesus is Better Than You Imagined. Mm. And um, it was not my title. I hated the title. And um, even at the time, I hated the title because it's not what the book was about. Yeah. It, wasn't, it wasn't a book about Jesus. It was a book about finding God in unexpected places. Yeah. <clears throat> and which is something I still believe mm-hmm. that, that God, however you want to conceptualize that, Maybe if you don't believe in God or you say you believe in the universe mm-hmm. or if you if you just say you believe in love mm-hmm. with a capital L. Yeah. All of those things, our experience of those things is is consistent in that those things show up in unexpected ways. Right. On purpose, consistently. In other words, you should always be expecting to encounter transcendence, to encounter divinity in unexpected places, not in the places that you would expect. So you can't just go showing up and turn on the spigot, right? <laughs> you have to learn to nurture a kind of openness to divine things. So I had written, and I still believe in the thesis of that book. So the publisher came back to me and said, you know what? This book didn't sell a whole bunch of copies. It's out of print now. You should just like do a little bit of a revision and we'll re-release it. And so I went in, I wrote a brand new intro, I sat down, this was maybe two months ago, I sat down to write the book. And then as I got started to get into it, I had to write the publisher back and say, they were already doing cover designs. And I said, I can't do this. Mm. Because it would have to be, by my estimation, it would have to be 80% new content. Yeah. And I will tell you, I was shocked. Mm-hmm. I thought I would need 20%, 30% new content, switch this language out for that language. But I began to see that even my posture toward the sacred text, the language that I used when I talked about God, I wouldn't use that today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, so my, my movement has been slower. I wouldn't say three months I would look back or even three years. But once you get to say, Four, five, six years back, I look at it and I'm shocked. Yeah. Now, would I go back and change it? I wouldn't because I don't believe that when I write something that, that, that it is etching something into stone, that it is uh, the, my final and universal word on this thing for all time. Right. What you're getting is a snapshot of a human being who is always changing, who in a moment was sharing what he thought in that moment based on the information that he had. Yeah. And there are other people who go back and read that book who aren't where I am now. They're where I was before. Right. And that book could be in the same way that it was for me, Mm. an opportunity to open a door that leads to a door that leads to a door that leads to a door that leads totally. to a door. Totally. And so for me to sort of despise that work based on where I am, because I, I'm sort of perceived that I'm more enlightened, doesn't respect the human being who sat down and did his best based on what he knew. And so I look at it as a snapshot. I don't look at it as kind of a, 
a, a, a word for all time. And right. that's relieved the pressure, I think, when I look back at, at the, my previous thoughts about faith. Yeah, I think that's really important to for a lot of people to realize, because I feel like um, we do have lots of listeners who are writers and who are in kind of a more um, like have a platform and are are evolving and changing and growing and have had these questions of like, well, what should I do with what I've done in the past? And um, for me, recently, I had someone come after me uh, because uh, my last Christian album, which is not I mean, it's where I was when I wrote it. It's it reflects my heart and my mindset and everything then. Um, and it's not it's not harmful. It's not like harmful material or anything, but it's not exactly how I would write things now or stand by now. But um, it is still sometimes I think it's still playing in uh, Canadian Christian radio and I had someone, you know, kind of come after me for that. And I said, well, that's for me as an artist, I wrote from my heart at that time. I can't I can't change I can't change the music now. I can't change what I said now. And I wouldn't anyway, because that wouldn't be true to 2019, 2018, 2017 me. Um, Cause yeah, what you're seeing is a, is a snapshot. And I, I think that's really important. And I'm, I'm thankful for the way you, you worded that. Um, speaking of your, your books um, and your writing, I love the title <laughs> to speak God from scratch. Uh, I'm, I'm curious for, for those who haven't heard of that and who have not read it, what is, what is speaking God from scratch mean? How do we do that? Well, you know, it, it started when I moved from Georgia to New York city. And I say in the book that I ran into a language barrier. It mm. wasn't that, wasn't that I couldn't, you know, hail a cab or order a hot dog from a stand. It was that I couldn't what I would say, speak God. I couldn't, couldn't draw from the language of faith right. that I had previously sort of felt fluent in to communicate to other people. What I realized is, is because I was meeting so many people from so many backgrounds that I would talk about something that I assumed was sort of common and they would ask for clarification on what I meant. Mm. And then I would find that I didn't know what I meant. I mm. couldn't say to them, I was using sort of these circular constructions. And I, I realized, I think, on one level that, and this is so often true, I think, uh, of people, particularly those of us who consider ourselves spiritual people, is that we do not often stop and directly ask the question, what am I saying when I'm saying what I'm saying, right. When I say, when, when you say God, and when I say God, we are making an assumption that the thing we mean when we say that word is the same thing. And what right. I'm finding is often true is it is not the same. Mm -hmm. And if you get a room full of, of even Christians who go to the same church and you give everybody an index card and you say, write to, down in a sentence, what grace is a very central sort of term in the Christian tradition. Right. You will get almost as many answers as you've passed out cards. Right. And that would be with people who are very closely linked. So what I'm finding is, is that many people have a kind of unexamined spiritual vocabulary. And uh, I think the other thing that I was, was learning is that 
I didn't always feel comfortable using this language because someone else had had uh, had sort of hijacked it. Yeah. And they had used it so often in a way that um, gave the word a kind of toxicity or radioactivity. Uh, or I would talk to people, particularly in New York, because so many people come here, not just to get here, but to get away from a place that is not here. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's why so many gay men uh, died during the AIDS epidemic here. They came to flee places yeah. that were not open, where they were facing violence and being ostracized. They came to New York. So everybody here is coming from other places that in many cases they were they were really running away from. Yeah. They were escaping. And so you have a lot of uh, people here who, who you could clearly identify as post-Christian. Mm. And those people have memories uh, around these words. Words hold memories and they're pain memories. And so they've had these words that we would use, even a word like God. And um, it, it, the, it is not just what you, it's not just your intention when you speak a word, it's your impact. Right. The impact of that word is pain because they had parents or pastors or friends who use those words to shame them or to scold them or to oppress them or to repress them. And so those words still carry that, 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 that pain memory with it. So the question I was asking is in this book, is it, can we even talk about God in a world like this, where it's right. misused in pop culture, where where it is religious language has been co-opted in in partisan politics? Is, is it even worth it, or should we just say, "I believe what I believe, and you believe what you believe," and what matters really is just that the individual feels comfortable with what they believe? Is there something in this speech act mm. that is deeply spiritual and worth thinking about? And that's. That's essentially why I wrote the book. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Want to take a quick moment to say thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode and rate and review the podcast as it helps others find this online community. Thanks so much. Now back to the episode. I love I love that. I think we've we've both had a we've already gone through seasons um, well, I'll speak for myself, but I know Adam's kind of gone through something similar, but I, I went through a season of kind of throwing out all, a lot of words. <laughs> um, I didn't really use God anymore. The word, um, I didn't, um, definitely not he God, de- definitely not he God definitely did not use father God. Um, and there were, there were several other things, you know, I didn't really talk about Holy spirit more just like, you know, intuition or whatever it is, you know, there's just lots of things that I ended up having to kind of put to the side for a while, while I healed and I was figuring my stuff out. And I, now that I, I am able to see all religion as some like similar in ways that it's tradition for them and cultural and all of that, I'm able to see kind of reclaim words. And I, I know you use the word revive them, um, in, in the book title, which that's, another really beautiful way to put it. Um, but we always say we, uh, we reclaim our, uh, reclaiming words and rec- reclaiming phrases. Um, I had a, a, someone 
again, I keep on referring to social media, but that's where I have most of my interactions about these things. Um, someone said, I really want to, um, I really want to say that I felt the spirit of the Lord whenever, you know, I was listening to this episode, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I feel like I, that, that phrase, it means something that I don't mean. Um, but yet at the same time, that's the only thing I could think of. And right. we had this discussion, basically, I said, you know, you can put that to the side for now and maybe think of another phrase that works for you. Like you felt love in that moment or you felt truth in that moment. You know, maybe think of another phrase if that's harmful for you right now. But maybe there's a time, maybe it's now or maybe it's later, maybe it's never. But that there there might be a time where you can maybe reclaim that phrase, feeling the spirit of the Lord. But it, And it's not your responsibility to prove to anyone else what that means for you you are you have the right and you have the safety and the space to reclaim what the spirit or what feeling the lord <laughs> may mean for you um and you don't have and you don't have to answer to anyone and that's been a healing space for me um and adam i think for for you too and um i think for for so so many people so i love that that's um that's kind of your it seems like the direction that the book um would seem to go, especially in the word revive, which just, I absolutely love. The, the book has a, a, a premise that is a premise <clears throat> in linguistics, which is that language functions a lot like li a living organism. And so it, 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 for example, it changes over time. And in fact, uh, linguists will tell you that it, if a language does not change, it dies. Yeah. That those are the two. Those are the two options. Languages can change and evolve, or they can decline and die. Right. And those are the only two. There's no third middle ground. And linguists are not. Uh, they're 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 not ambiguous on that point. Uh, we find that even in the Christian tradition, uh, I have a whole chapter on sin in the book where I say here are like the four major ways that the Bible uses the phrase sin, and they they are developing across time, handing off one understanding to another understanding to another understanding to another. And then today, we talk about sin, depending on your tradition, in a whole range of ways that you'll never even find in the New Testament. Right. There, there are new ways. You know, if somebody says, uh, you know, you've got a sin problem, you know, like problem solution language is very like modern capitalistic language. Yeah. Nobody says to nobody says like you're a heretic if you say that, but it is a new way. It's an innovative way, an innovative meaning for the word sin. Um, whether it's a good one or a helpful one or one that we should use or not, that's a discussion. Right. But the the idea is is that there are many ways of understanding these words. And so in order to to see that a language survives, you have to tend it. You have to get together and have conversations about the ways in which you experience, not just the words, words are just signposts, right. the concepts that the words point to. And for some people, when you begin to see a language that is in decline, that is dying, we have many modern examples of them being revived. Now, it's 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 rare, but you can actually 
bring a, a language back to life. One of the ways you do it is you help it to change quickly. You know, a great example is Hebrew, but you'll also find Gaelic and Catalan and Hawaiian. And there are lots of modern languages that have been been revived. Yiddish uh, was a language that until recently was growing, was on the rise after almost almost dying. So languages being brought back, what I was really asking is, is then what does that look like when you talk about the language of faith, the vocabulary of faith, a spiritual vocabulary? And I found that there were basically three approaches uh, when, when to, a, to a dying language. And as I was reading through, I took a year and just read linguistics because, you know, this was like a four-year process and one year was just linguistics. And what I kept running into when, we, when I was reading about um, <clears throat> these comeback languages was that most people's, many people's approach, particularly if you come from traditionalist or conservative backgrounds, your approach to, to a dying language is what's called fossilization. Hmm. This would be a typical fundamentalist approach. They would say, the way that I understand this word is the, is the way that this word should be understood. And we have to make sure that people are using this language in this way and they're using it properly. And we have to go back. And so they want to talk about repentance and they want to talk about sin and they want to talk about salvation and they want to do it with uh, a definition that they accepted earlier in life. So they fossilize it. They lock it into place and say, nobody touch it. So if you go into like, uh, a church where, you know, I, I would use the example of people maybe don't know this, but if you, if you know the word Calvinist, there's Calvinist churches, Presbyterians are Calvinist mm -hmm. and they, they have a big belief in like the sovereignty of God. If you're in a Calvinist church and you say, you know what I think we should do? I don't know that we've understood the word sovereignty. I think we should get people <laughs> together and have a conversation about that. You're not going to be around for long yeah. <laughs> because they've already, that word has been defined and it has been defined properly. It has been calcified. It has been fossilized and it is untouchable. Right. That is fossilization. That is the quickest way to ensure that a language will die. It's actually a death accelerator for right. language. And so fundamentalism is, I think, contributing um, to these fundamentalist evangelical expressions they are out here trying to promote uh, the language of faith, but the way in which they're doing that is having the opposite effect. It's actually killing it in the Western world. It's why we're seeing such steep declines in language usage around religious and moral terms. The, the other option, which is what a lot of uh, people will, uh, will opt for, is they will, they will do substitution. Yeah. They will take a, a word and they will uh, switch it out for another word. Mm. And you find that a lot. Yeah. Um, you, you, there's the other option, which is you just pitch it. You eliminate it, right? You right. just get rid of it. You just go, okay, the word God is triggering or the word sin is triggering or this other word is triggering. And because it's triggering for people, then we shouldn't use it and we shouldn't talk about it and we shouldn't deal with it. Um, the only problem there is, is that the problem is not the word. The problem right. is the concept. Yeah. And when you stop using the word, you haven't dismantled the concept. Mm -hmm. You haven't done you haven't done anything. In fact, what you've done is is you've eliminated the friction that is calling you to do the hard work of language evolution of saying right. this doesn't feel right. This isn't this is this is this makes God
that out to be something less than loving. This hurts people when you use it this mm. way. You bury, so, you like bury the concept whole without like exactly getting and into it still exists it. right it still exists in people's minds they're still terrorized by the concept mm -hmm. even if the even if they're not allowing themselves to give voice to the word and yeah. so what i talk about in the book is what linguists call language play or word play which is um intentional efforts to sit down with people you know and trust around a common table and to and to have conversations about what we mean and rather than just sort of slapping each other with 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 definitionless words, to begin to sort of hear from others how they've encountered these concepts and principles and deeper realities, and to do it in such a way that even if I don't like or understand the way in which they speak about God, making an effort to seek to understand before seeking to be understood, to ensure that the majority of the sentences that we use in these conversations end in a question mark and not a period. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, is that if we can nurture these kinds of communities, which is what essentially what church should be doing, right. their religious communities, their language incubators, or can be, or should be, or historically have been, then you see that the language of faith grows and it is pruned and it becomes more loving and more kind and more just over time. But I, I think for most of us in the United States, we've had very, very different approaches when it comes to the language of faith that does not have the, the capability of reviving it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, amen. You just described what we want, like what we our, our heart's desire is for our our podcast and the community that we build is yeah. basically that to have these conversations and for them basically to all end in a question mark, um, <laughs> just so everyone else can just in, like continue the conversations and ask questions. And um, yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's really awesome the way you just described that. And that's all, um, you know, in your, in your book, I think people will really be able to, to revive words like you've just, you described it and reclaim them and potentially give them the courage to start asking those questions and start having those conversations. Um, and that being said, is there, uh, can you just give a little shout out to where people can find you and your book? Yeah. Um, well, I'll say the book you can buy wherever you buy books. If mm -hmm. you're a Barnes and Noble or an Amazon person, I know a lot of people like to, to use independent bookstores and I'm a big fan of independent bookstores. Um, that's the best. Um, and people can find me on social media. I like Instagram more than, than Twitter these days. Yeah. Twitter is a, is a, uh, a tough place for me. I think it, I think it really, um, encourages the worst version of myself. Mm. And so I have been in a process of, um, dramatically reducing usage on Twitter, but I really like Instagram. And uh, I think that that's a, a, a better outlet for me. I, I have a newsletter where I will send out like the top five uh, religion and uh, or faith and culture stories of the week. So like there's so much coming out. How do you know what to read if you want to stay up on what's happening, what's changing in faith and culture? Amazing. I always will like curate, curate the five and I send those out um, each, each week. So people can go to JonathanMerritt.com and, and sign up for that there if they want to. 
That is so cool. Love that. And that's basically, that kind of circles back around to like, yeah, you're helping us see the trends and you're enlightening us and helping give us words. And um, I love that. Jonathan, you've been so amazing and I've loved hearing your story. I'm excited for this episode to come out. It'll actually be out um, this Monday, this literal coming Monday. Um, And I'm really excited for the listeners to hear it because I know they're going to just be so excited to hear your your wisdom and yeah, you're just full of knowledge. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. It really means so much to us. Oh my gosh. The the pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And for everyone listening, um, thank you for being here. We love you. And until next time. Bye. Bye.